Welcome to the latest tax podcast from the tax recruitment company. We provide regular free tax podcasts and CPD tax webinars throughout the year to help and support leading tax professionals in the UK. Please visit our website at www.taxrecruitmentcompany.co.uk to get your free subscription. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, my name is uh, James Howell and I'm the Managing Director of the Tax Recruitment Company. Welcome to our podcast. Today we're going to be looking at HMRC tax fraud investigations uh, and providing you with Code 9 insights. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by um, two experts in this area. First of all, we've got Gary Brothers, who's the Managing Director of Independent Tax and is seen as one of the leading tax investigation specialists in the UK has many years of experience. Thank um, you, James. <laughs> and also by Charlie Tateson, who's a former COP9 inspector. Um, he actually worked in that role for over 10 years and now is, is a key member of the team at Independent Tax as well. Uh, so welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So, um, Gary, I don't know if you'd be happy to kick off, but my understanding is there's sort of three different types of COP9 cases. Um, is that correct? And, and, and sort of what are they? Yes, James, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, as practitioners who routinely see Code 9 work, um, I think it's fair to say there are three types of, of Code 9 fraud investigation and, uh, and all three are, are sometimes overlooked. Um, the first one that, that should never be overlooked are, are cases where we ask for Code 9 on a voluntary basis. So a client comes to see us, they've, they've got something wrong significantly in their affairs, that uh, constitutes fraud or, or as the language these days is deliberate conduct and uh, and we recognise that, that those errors, those mistakes, those things that that client has done um, could expose them to potential criminal investigation by HMRC and so because of the uh, immunity that comes with Code 9 uh, once it's offered and accepted um, we would recommend on a voluntary basis that that person goes to HMRC and asks for Code 9, thus crystallising their immunity from criminal investigation and, and then giving them the certainty that, that they'll resolve their issues with HMRC on a, on a civil basis, on a, on a non-criminal basis. So, so the first type is, is, is just that, a voluntary request for Code 9. Um, the second type of Code 9 case, perhaps the slightly more routine one, it is a case that's been working with a, a local officer, a local inspector, um, a, a fairly standard investigation where something presents itself in that investigation. Perhaps the inspector finds something or or they perceive something because Code 9 is only a suspicion of tax fraud. It's, it's not a demonstrable tax fraud. But that local district, local office investigation escalates and is subject to an internal referral within HMRC that, that the accountant, the, the practitioner, won't be aware of all they'll see at their end is a is a long silence while the inspector is apparently considering matters in the case what's actually happening is there's a discussion between the uh, standard investigator and the code 9 investigator about whether the case should be escalated and then on one of those escalated code 9 cases out comes a code 9 letter but really triggered by something that's happened in that preceding investigation uh, and then the third type of Code 9 case is, is one where a Code 9 letter 
just drops out of the woodwork. Nobody was expecting it. The, the client is not subject to investigation. They were trotting along quite merrily in their business and, and private life. The accountant didn't think there was anything that presented any type of risk to that uh, client. And, and a Code 9 letter crops up, falls on the mat on a Friday or a Saturday morning in the horrible brown envelope, open it up and, and there inside is the Code 9 paperwork from a, from a pretty much a standing start. But three types. Voluntary disclosure, what we call an escalated case, or a spontaneous case that, that just drops out of the woodwork. They're the, the three types of Code 9 cases that we see routinely. And there'll be some people listening to this, Gary, who, who might not have ever seen a Code 9 case. Um, how, how common are they? Uh, you know, Is it quite normal to go through your career of not seeing many, or, or would people, some people see a lot of them? What, what's the sort of frequency and likelihood of, of people sort of coming across a Code 9 case? That's a, that's a really difficult question to answer. Uh, what we know is HMRC as an organisation are gearing up their resource for Code 9 investigations so that they will take more on, which raises the chances of a practitioner seeing one. Um, but we talk to some practitioners who've never seen one or, or ask us to assist because it's the first and only one they've ever seen in an entire career. There are other practitioners who we know very well who who... Because of the profile of their clients, perhaps they're very entrepreneurial clients who by nature tend to be slightly more uh, risk takers. Um, they have seen some more Code 9 cases and it's a really difficult question to answer. What we know is HMRC as a national team are, are taking between four and 6,000 new Code 9 cases on an annual basis. So the chances of seeing one are very possible. But it really stems from the nature of the client base. If it's a very steady, non-risk-taking client base, I think the chances are lower, but not impossible. I think if a client base is very entrepreneurial or high net worth, then the chances of, of a Code 9 case presenting itself in, in that kind of portfolio become a little higher. Charlie, would you have any insight from HMRC in terms of when you work there as to how, how often they might occur or... Um, not so much as to how often, but when Gary was saying earlier, the two types that come from HMRC, one of the things we must remember is that a thorough review will have gone through from HMRC um, before anything actually hits you as a taxpayer. Um, whether it's been escalated by a, a local office inquiry or something like that, um, that might have been based on any number of trigger points that are standard within HMRC that the officer must make a referral through. Um, the same thing, the same review will happen from a fraud investigation point of view. Um, the HMRC officer will do a lot of research into that before deciding whether or not you will be offered COP9. Um, more often than not, I'm finding that we do find there is a suspicion because it just has to be a suspicion of fraud. And it's then the taxpayer's opportunity to respond to that. Um, when I was working with an HMRC, we could have between... 10 and 20 cases each on a team of between 10 and 15 people. So as Gary alluded to earlier, there are getting more and more cases dropping on the doorstep um, and, and worrying taxpayers, quite rightly so. But I, personally, I've worked with hundreds of accountancy firms and I'd say pretty much most of them have had experience of it at some stage. So if you haven't had experience of it yet, unfortunately, it probably is going to be coming around to, to bite you at some stage. So it is good to sort of have a a bit of an understanding about how to handle these types of cases. So, Gary, 
how should you handle a COP9 case once you've once one's been one's come through? Well, I, I think the important thing to remember is once the letter lands offering the clients uh, the Code 9 opportunity, as Charlie describes it, and it is an opportunity, um, once that letter lands, um, firstly, the practitioner and the client will know exactly what they've got on their hands. There is no room for any misunderstanding or doubt that this is a, a serious matter and um, is a challenge of suspected fraud um, in no short order because all of the paperwork and, and it's a pack that runs to 30 or 40 pages of paper um, the paperwork talks about it in that blunt and almost alarmist way so so first and foremost there, there is no doubt what the practitioner and the client is, is facing um, so the first thing to do is to understand what we're dealing with to have a, a conversation with the client and to recognise that a process has started at that point. And, and Code 9 work is very much a process. It has a natural start, a middle and an end. Um, the first thing that should happen, as I say, is a conversation with the client. Um, it will either be very apparent what has driven HMRC to issue the Code 9 letter, or at the other end of the spectrum, people will be left scratching their heads. Obviously, if it's a voluntary request, then we're very well armed for what the appropriate steps to take are because we've generated that. But talking about the escalated or spontaneous cases, they present a challenge of themselves. The first thing to remember is that when the letter lands offering the client the opportunity to participate in a Code 9 investigation, there are some key things to recognise. First and foremost, we have 60 days as a hard deadline for the first response to that pack when it arrives. There are two constituent elements to that pack. We either have to complete a form that accepts or rejects the participation in the Code 9 process. And we only accept if we have a tax error brought about deliberately, or to use the more common phrase, a suspected tax fraud in our affairs. So if we have that situation presenting itself in our client's affairs, the accept route and accept form is the obvious form to complete. If, however, we feel that there is absolutely nothing wrong in our client's affairs, then the rejection form would be the appropriate route. But we have a really serious consideration at the outset to think about which of those relatively simple forms is appropriate to the client's circumstances. If we feel that an acceptance is the appropriate step, then there's also a secondary step, which is the completion of an outline disclosure. And it's very much to be seen as an outline, a general overview of what might have gone wrong, how it might have gone wrong, the extent of any errors if we're able to complete them. Now, as a practice, we talk to many, many, many practitioners who ask for our help at this stage. And I attach no criticism to accountants. One of their absolute attributes is their desire for precision. At this stage, it must be remembered that precision is not needed. It's an outline disclosure because we haven't got into the process with the forensic eye. So precision at this stage can actually be a bad thing rather than a helpful thing. It's a general overview of what might have gone wrong. I think there are some other things that uh, should be thought about at this stage. Um, key is 
what we're going to do in that 60-day process. It's a hard period of 60 days when HMRC will not talk to us. They won't engage with us in any way, shape or form. So the onus and the responsibility is on us as practitioners to talk to our clients and to start to understand what may be wrong in their tax affairs. We get 60 days from HMRC because it's a serious response. It's not to be taken lightly and HMRC are saying to us, use the time wisely, use the time advisedly. So for example, if you look at the Code of Practice 9 leaflet that talks about how this work is done, it does say practitioners should take specialist advice because HMRC recognise that this is a specialist area. The institutes, the various institutes, encourage practitioners to seek specialist advice for specialist work. The reason there's a 60-day hiatus in the case is to allow all of those conversations to take place and also to allow some serious, significant conversations with the client. Gary, what are the penalties if you don't get back to them within the 60-day period? Well, that's a really good question, James, because Mm. if you do nothing in the 60 days... The default assumption of HMRC is that you are rejecting the offer of Code 9. Right. So you will be assuming to be saying, I have nothing to tell you. And the reason that's important, and practitioners must understand, all Code 9 work is a pseudo-criminal investigation. What the revenue are saying by the issue of Code 9 letters is, we believe there is something in your affairs so wrong that we could criminally investigate those errors but we will give you an opportunity to resolve them on a non-criminal basis so if suddenly you're viewed to have rejected the offer there is a risk that hmrc could criminally investigate those errors if they believe they are real so there is real risk to default assuming that you've rejected we have a number of clients that we've rejected for And we're advocates of, when we reject, providing a narrative and an explanation of the circumstances of that taxpayer's affairs and why we believe a rejection is the appropriate response. But just to assume rejection is a really dangerous place to be because you then leave HMRC to make decisions on an uninformed basis or only relying on the information that's in their file when they've categorised it as a potential criminal case in any event. So it's quite a dangerous place to be and and not a a, a profile I would re- recommend a client presents to HMRC. If I can highlight something that Gary said earlier, um, there is a, a really big difference here between your normal investigation or inquiry that you might get as an accountant um, with a bit of a shopping list from HMRC. Um, as Gary alluded to earlier, you won't get anything like that from HMRC at this particular point. It's your opportunity to tell them what they think the risks are. Um, We often see, um, when I was working in HMRC, um, and again, attaching no no kind of criticism here, but an accountant who can panic if they're not familiar with the COP9 process and still work it like a normal inquiry and provide what they think a shopping list might look like from HMRC's point of view. Um, At this early stage, that's not what they are looking for. They are just looking for an outline of what deliberate behaviour might have taken place or indeed if you haven't had any deliberate behaviour causing a tax loss, your rejection at that point. Um, So while the 60 days is a a ticking clock, um, one of the things that we recommend is that you you do seek specialist advice and you don't press the panic button and just provide HMRC with all and sundry to try and make something 
to show that you're cooperating. Would you just as a, um, a team be happy to, to, for anyone listening, if they're at that stage, provide some sort of free input advice just to sort of, you know, not necessarily um, say, look, you must use independent tax or you must use someone else, but just sort of give point someone in the right direction at that stage and, and things. Completely, James. I mean, as, as a practice that supports accountants, we're very used to having a, a sounding board role, if I could describe yeah. it as that. So we talk to our practitioners regularly. We take very many telephone calls or emails from practitioners seeking a helping hand. And, and, and all of that's not on the clock. We're unusual in that regard in that we don't charge for every conversation we have or, or every email respond, we respond to because we want to have a close working relationship with our practitioners and only become involved where there is a real need and a real value that we can add. So we're more than happy to take query telephone calls, what we would call sounding board telephone calls for people who just need some assistance with an element of understanding, absolutely. Great. Um, so what's the next stage of the process then? Well, we, we sit down with the client, we capture whatever their response is and, and let's assume it's an acceptance rather than a rejection because a rejection can lead to many things. Um, but if it's an acceptance, then it's on a slightly more conventional footing. The inspector is hoping for an acceptance. Um, and the first next step is then an opening meeting with HMRC between the practitioners or ourselves if we're asked to assist, the taxpayer and HMRC. And interestingly, as a practice with over 100 years experience within the practice, it is actually the only meeting we would take a client to with HMRC. We're complete advocates for avoiding client meetings, taxpayers at HMRC meetings. It's not necessary, except in the Code 9 arena, where it's an absolute cooperative requirement to have the client at that meeting. So there's an opening meeting. Why, if, why is that then going? Why, why would you say that they should come to that? Because we all know clients can say stupid things at times or not what you want no, them to say, or, but why would you? Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, there, are, there are a number of reasons. First of all, Code 9 as a process, and I mentioned it was a process earlier, defaults to assume that the client will attend that opening meeting. Oh, okay. And so early on, there's little to be gained by arguing over the smooth running of what is in essence a, a pseudo-criminal investigation. We don't want to goad HMRC yes. to believe that we are non-cooperative. So, so as a process, it assumes that interaction. There are certain caveats, health and, 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 and other concerns, where occasionally we'll exempt a client, but, but we default to assume that the client will attend. Perceptionally, positionally, almost tactically for us as practitioners, it's also helpful in our relationship and our later relationship with HMRC. So if the case runs smoothly, it will be the only time at which that client will see HMRC because the later processes involve a, a, a forensic disclosure report saying to HMRC, we as practitioners have investigated the client and these are our findings. If the meeting goes well, then HMRC should be comforted that they've checked in advance, if you like, the taxpayer's position so that the later disclosure passes muster and holds good against what they've heard earlier on. It's their opportunity to look the client in the whites of their eyes and form a view that this person is going to be cooperative, has embraced the Code 9 challenge and is going to mend their ways 
and come through the process as a as a a reformed character so so it is a meeting that's got some value what we do do as a practice a practice forgive me is we coach our clients very carefully right not yeah. in a not in a, a, a an unethical way but because it's such a process driven process probably 80 to 85 percent of all code nine meetings are standard so we can take that client in very well armed with what they're likely to be facing there are very few surprises in our experience I can't remember the last time one went wrong. So we can look after our clients very closely to make sure they're not disadvantaged by being at that meeting. But but it is a, a very good discipline to get into that that client should go to that particular type of meeting. Right. So after the meeting, what's the next stage of the process then? Well, the next stage um, as a practitioner is every client breathes a heavy sigh of relief <laughs> because it's not a meeting that they're, they're particularly looking forward to. It should be business-like and professional, but it's it's... It is a meeting that the client's not looking forward to. At the end of every meeting, I can promise you all of our clients have always said to us, that's not as bad as I was expecting it to be. Yeah. But they need to get to that point to be able to say that. But they all do. Client goes off. They go back to their business. How long would the meeting generally last for? It could be half a day or longer. Oh, it's it's longer, usually, yeah. usually quite yeah. lengthy. Um, but the client goes away and, and puts that behind them. We then reconvene as a practice with HMRC. Not the client. They're stood down. But us as a practice reconvene with HMRC probably when they've had a chance to reflect on the meeting as well. So a short time afterwards and HMRC will set the parameters for the investigation that's about to take place. That again, as part of the Code 9 process, the practice supporting the client will undertake. That's the interesting thing to remember about a Code 9 case, which is the taxpayer's side undertake the investigation for HMRC and report the findings back to HMRC to check. So it's quite a passive role for HMRC in this investigation. So we have a scoping meeting after the opening meeting where HMRC will say to us, we've heard what the client's got to say. There are no surprises. We're very satisfied that they're embracing the process. And this is what we would like you to go and check for us. And we set the parameters for that work. And then HMRC go away and we do that work. Typically, six months to prepare a disclosure report, not every day, but a six month process where we as former inspectors will put our inspector's hat back on. But with the assistance and cooperation of our client, we'll then gather against the framework that the revenue have then set us, gather all of the information, undertake all of the investigation work with a view to pulling together a forensic report that goes to HMRC to say, this is what I want to tell you. HMRC. That work is very resource intensive. Um, typically, practices should be aware that in our experience, that's probably 200 plus hours of work. So it's quite a big deal. Um, not to be taken on lightly by practices, that's for sure, because it can be very disruptive to the normal life of a practice. But probably 200 hours of work, typically to produce a, a fully adopted disclosure report by the client. But that's pulled together goes to the client as a draft, we have questions, we have processes, and when the client and the practice concerned are satisfied that this is what we want to say, client signs it off and it goes to HMRC as our response to what we believe might be wrong in our client's affairs. Question for both of you, I mean, is there any sort of really obvious do's and don'ts in that report that people should be conscious of? I, I think for me as a long-established practitioner is 
don't take any chances. Yeah. This is not now a chance to take a chance to play any games to to not disclose things that people absolutely know is wrong because that that criminal sword of Damocles has not gone away. Yeah. Until HMIC sign this off as an accepted disclosure report, if a client takes a chance in that response and, and holds something back and HMRC find it, then it could well and indeed more likely would trigger a criminal response. So the do's and don'ts are open communication, work with your advisors, complete transparency. If there's a position to take, tax is subjective after all. So if there's a filing position to take where we don't agree a particular tax outcome with HMRC, we can do that but transparently thought through and reasoned so that there are no hiding places, there are no chances taken, and we can't be criticised for for trying to keep something away from HMRC at that point. But other than that, head down, work hard, and get this thing to a point of submission to HMRC as best we can. That's a really big point uh, that Gary made there. Um, As an ex-HMRC investigator dealing with these cases, if you were to get a disclosure report in at the end that contained surprises that just didn't wasn't backed up evidentially, you're going to ask more questions. What you want to do, your target for the end of this, is for the investigator to ask no more questions, to accept the report and the tax that's due and agreed between ourselves and you. Um, you don't want them knocking on your door. You don't want them shaking any trees for anything else to fall out. Because they will, if they don't get what's expected at the end, they are going to have further questions. So we need to work with you and work with the inspector as well to, after the scoping meeting, there will also be progression meetings during the course of a COP9 investigation to ensure that we are where we need to be and that we are going to take off the inspector's risks at the end. Um, the, the very last thing you want to do is have an upset inspector. Uh, because they are human beings, I am and was one when I was there, um, they will naturally think if something comes through that looks the way it was supposed to, they'll look on it with a, a better eye. If there's anything that's got holes in, they are trained investigators. They've, they've been trained to a really high standard for this. They will find those holes. And we, as independent tax, make sure there are no holes for them to find, really. Do you have a sort of checklist or a sort of, I don't know, a mini guide for people on this sort of process that you might be happy to share with people or... Uh... We do, James. We do. We have a a free checklist of good practice that we've pulled together from our own experiences and and that we're happy to let practices have so that they are well-armed for what this process looks like. Absolutely. So if anyone listening to this either contacts us at the tax recruitment company or contacts Gary and his team directly at Independent Tax, we can make sure they they get hold of that. We would be delighted to provide that. We we do routinely and and we're more than happy to, to help people by passing on a little bit of our experience in that regard. So we've done the report, what's the next stage of the process? So report goes to HMRC, probably six to nine months after the opening letter, so it is it a process that takes a little time. Um, and as Charlie says, what we're looking for from the inspector who's going to check that report is as many red ticks as we can achieve. So part of the value we add as, as ex-HMRC staff is we're investigating the client but amongst friends, so that when the report goes to HMRC, we uh, we hope that we've answered as many of the questions as an HMRC inspector would, so that they're ticking as much as possible. Assuming that happens, then we move very quickly to settlement stage. We've captured the amount of tax that will be at stake. 
The interest is, is arithmetical on the due dates to when it's likely to be paid. And then we have negotiations over the level of appropriate penalty that might be charged. Once all of that back-end loose ends are tied off, if I can call it that, then we crystallise the settlement figures, we agree them with the client, we agree them with HMRC, and the client can close it off and, and put this sorry episode behind them. Excellent. So that's all there is to a COP9 case then? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very simple. Um, it should be a once-in-a-career development for a client, and certainly for many practices, is a rare bird too. That was very interesting, Gary and Charlie. Uh, hopefully people listening uh, picked up some really useful tips there. Um, as we said, if you like to just pick up the phone and, and talk to Gary and his team and get some free advice, um, uh, they'd be very happy to do that. It's independent tax, just to remind you. Um, equally, if you can't get hold of their number, please give me a shout or our team at the tax recruitment company. We'd be delighted to pass on their details. So thank you very much for listening and I hope you found that useful. Thank you for listening to this tax podcast from the Tax Recruitment Company. Why not contact us to find out about our free career coaching and CPD tax webinars? Our specialist recruitment team have over 60 years experience in tax and accountancy and would be delighted to discuss your future career options with you. We strive to help tax professionals find their perfect job in tax. Please contact us at www.taxrecruitmentcompany.co.uk.